Well, good morning, church. Boy, you were more effervescent last week. I count on the second service because I'm going to tell you a secret. In the first service, eh, it's tough. It's early. But second service, you guys are usually, good morning, church. There we go. See, I knew you could do it. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2, and let me just give a qualifier as we start. Uh, ben McVitie, who just was up here giving announcements, I think he went that way. Ben is, uh, he's one of the technical geniuses here. He is the police officer in charge of me getting my sermon notes in on Wednesday. And if you don't have the notes in by noon on Wednesday, they come a-looking for you. And so I have to get him in, and he does an amazing job. He's a bit of a genius. He, I send in some thing that's barely legible, and then he turns it into this. But that means by Wednesday, i got to have all my thoughts basically collected and organized. The problem is I keep thinking about the message as the week goes on, and I'll be lying in bed on Saturday night. And so I'm going to adjust the title. Is that okay? Grace in adjusting the title? So my... Message is why I follow Jesus. But really, the amended title, okay, the amended title, this is sort of like we're not going to touch the green belt. Too soon? Was that too soon? (laughs) The amended title is why I continue to follow Jesus. Because this isn't the reason that I began to follow Jesus, but what I want to talk to you about this morning is two promises from the Lord that help me and guide me and have kept me in following Jesus. Sometimes not all that well and in bumpiness and everything, but that's where we're headed this morning, two promises. So keep your fingers in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to come to the text, but I want to give you a little, uh, I want to paint a little picture of you about these two promises for you. And the combination of these two may surprise you. The first one likely will not. I continue to follow Jesus because he is my comfort. He will comfort you. Amen? Amen. He's our comfort. He will comfort you. Of course, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, what? Comforted comforted. And in fact, Paul, the apostle Paul, he expands upon that in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he identifies God as the God of all comfort. And that's a magnificent, wonderful thing. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I think it was, Psalm 23. If you have your Bible, turn over to Psalm 23 quick. We're just going to do a little side trip, okay? This is the psalm of comfort for many of us. It's the place that followers of God have went to for Uh, hundreds of years to find comfort, the 23rd Psalm. And as you, I'm going to walk us through this, just remember, a lot of people like to think the 23rd Psalm is David standing out, standing amongst sheep, you know, with his staff, and he's out there, and he pens that. This is quite likely David at the end of his kingship. He's been king for a long time. He's had some bumps in the road. He's had some egregious moral failures in his life. He's, he's followed God very imperfectly, but he writes this amazing psalm of reflection. So let's look at it. Let me walk you through it. The Lord is my shepherd. That's relationship. Then he writes, I shall not want. That's contentment. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, that's rest. He leadeth me beside the still waters, that's refreshment. He restoreth my soul, that's healing. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, that's guidance. For his name's sake, that's purpose. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's challenge. David reflects back and he knows that he was going to sit on a throne that he had to fight a thug, right? That happens. I will fear no evil, that's assurance, for thou art with me, that's faithfulness. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, that shelter. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, that's protection. Thou anointest my head with oil, that's consecration. My cup runneth over, that's abundance. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, that's blessing. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord, that's security forever, that's eternity. Eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a great God. He's a God of comfort. And God has promised this and has been a great comfort to many of us, not simply by way of the promise, but ultimately by way of his presence. So that's the first thing I want us to look at this morning. We're going to come to the text. Stay with me. The second one that has helped me in continuing to follow the Lord Jesus might surprise you a little bit. Because he's promised not just to comfort us, but he's promised to correct us. I will correct you. In fact, a little farther along in the book of Hebrews, we'll get to it in a few weeks, in Hebrews chapter 12, he uses that phrase that some of us have used, you know, when we discipline our kids. For the Lord disciplines the one he, what? Loves. Yeah, the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. That a loving act of God and a promise of the Lord Jesus is that, and he promises this including in his departure when he promises the Holy Spirit because the Spirit will come and lead you into all truth and truth by nature is corrective. And so he promises to correct us. I'm so grateful for that. I don't always appreciate it, but ultimately I'm grateful for it. Contrary to popular opinion in our world, sin is not simply what you want to do, but you should not. Sometimes I'm around people who identify as far from God, and they go, you know, the problem with you know, the whole Christian thing is, man, just, it's just a killjoy. It's a wet blanket at the party. Right? That's not what sin is. Sin is what you should not do, not because you want to do it. Sin is what you should not do because, in fact, it will hurt you will hurt you. God's not a policeman looking around for lawbreakers, you know. Going to kind of point you out. He's a father who loves and cares for his children. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, we lived in the southern U.S. for 11 years, and when we lived in South Carolina, uh, one afternoon my two boys and I were walking through our neighborhood, and uh, we looked down, and there lying next to the curb was a cottonmouth snake. Okay, they're big, they're fat through the... Anybody here scared of snakes? Yeah, okay. You wouldn't like living in the south. They got lots of snakes and lots of spiders. Probably the same one that don't like snakes, don't like spiders. There's an old song, I don't like spiders and snakes. You're probably that person. I digress. Cottonmouth snake lying in the against the curb, looked like it was kind of, you know, flattened out and dead. So my oldest son, who was about 10, he grabs it by the tail. Now, if a cottonmouth bites you, you won't die, but you probably wish you would. It's a pretty nasty bite. So my oldest son, Spencer, he picks it up, and he's holding it like this, and he and my youngest son land, and they're kind of laughing, and, and I'm standing over there, and uh, what he can't tell is that the head of that cottonmouth is starting to go like this. Aww. 
wasn't as dead as he hoped it was. I said, drop it right now. Drop the snake. Of course, he flings it. He said, it's not dead. See, he, he thought I was asking him to give up a toy. But I was a father saying, that is danger to you. That is going to hurt you. Comfort and correction. And Hebrews chapter 2 speaks into both of these realities. And we need both of these gifts in following the Lord. We get his comfort and we get his correction. I've been in many, many churches throughout Canada and the U.S. preaching and ministering and serving. And uh, here's what I've seen. I've seen churches that are all comfort and no correction. You just kind of do whatever you want. Oh, God, he's kind of warm and fuzzy. And, you know, he's my daddy. And, you know, he's like a blanket on the sofa. And he just wraps around me. But you can kind of do whatever you want. If you believe God is all comfort and there's no correction with God, then you will live a life of license. You'll kind of do kinds of whatever you want, and then it'll be like, okay, God, can you fix up the aftermath? In other churches, they have the God of correction without the God of comfort. They're kind of churches like this, you know. If you have a, a church and, and if you live a life of God is simply correction and no comfort, then you become a legalist. And you become, uh, you know, difficult. Churches like that, they actually, you know, they believe God is a tyrant. And he's that God of correction. And he just wants to let you have it. And they sort of reflect that in the way they do church and the way they live. Neither one of those are tenable. You can't live those out. The fact is, you need both of those in equal measure. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read a few verses. Follow along, if you will. Hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, now the therefore rests in the reality that last Sunday, if you were here, we talked about the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is supreme above all others. So the writer of Hebrews is now saying, because of that, this. So listen carefully. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's a corrective statement. Because in fact, the Hebrews that were being written to, which were Jewish Christians, they were on wobbly faith legs. And they were trying to, you know, figure this out. And, you know, this is 30 years after Christ's resurrection that the book of Hebrews was written. They're taking some hits. They're facing some persecution. They're wobbling. And in some cases, they're beginning to drift. And the writer's saying, hold on, hold on. Because Christ is supreme, don't drift. You've got to get back to where you were. It's a corrective statement. For, verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression, transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a question. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by... Two, by us who heard, those who heard. So we saw Jesus, we watched his life, we watched the way he lived and died. Those who followed, we were eyewitnesses to that. We've seen amazing things happening in the name of Christ. How how do we walk away from that? How, How do we not stay hard and fast in following Jesus? While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, that's the miraculous, which was happening, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So let's look back to verse 1. We must pay closer attention. 
And if you have, depending on what translation, you'll see that the translator note, it's not part of the original holy text, but the translator note in some translations says, pay attention, right? Or listen carefully. Verse 2, it tells us that the, it talks about the angels because in the Old Testament, the Jews believed that the Old Testament law was mediated by way of angels. And the punishment for deviating from that was, of course, very severe, considering the warnings of God and the holiest, holiness of God. And then we get to verse 3, and the writer reiterates this fact that we have a great salvation because we have a great Savior that we've read about in chapter 1. And we've seen and heard all these miracles, and there was a, there's a demonstrative moving of the Spirit And God has enabled people to do significant things. How how do we just walk away from that? Look down, if you will. No, let me me move on. Let me move on. And then the, the catalyst, I would say, or the significant reality is those few words there, just five words. In the ESV, it says, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. That's an interesting word, drift. Drift. Anybody ever been in a canoe on a lake? You know, and you're out there, and it's a beautiful summer day, and you, you know, you're paddling around, and you say, oh, you know, I'm just going to lie and, you know, just bask in the sun. And so you put the paddle, and you lay back, and you lie there, and maybe you doze off or whatever, and you wake up, and you ain't where you was. You ever notice that? You're like 10 cottages down or you're on the other side of the lake. What in the world? You drifted. You, you lost your mooring. You, 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 know, you ended up in a place that you didn't expect when you started. Sometimes that can be very incremental. In spiritual matters, you know, people lose their conviction and their passion. They, they, they sort of end up where they didn't expect. Back in 1960, that's a long time ago, the summer of 1960, Beautiful, sunny July day. A man gets in a motorboat with two kids upriver of Niagara Falls. Now, I'm here to tell you, if I'm getting in a motorboat and it's upriver of Niagara Falls, for me, upriver's like Lake Michigan. That's how far I want to be from Niagara Falls if I'm getting in a motorboat. Okay? But they get in a motorboat. And they're out there, everything's going good, and then the motor starts to sputter, and they start to have trouble, and guess what they begin to do? They begin to drift. And they drift a little more, and he's trying to get the engine started, and they start drifting down towards the falls, and of course, if you've been to Niagara Falls, most of us have, you know, the water gets quite tumultuous, the closer you get to the falls, and that boat starts to rock, and the boat goes over, and all three of them go in the river. The man, he's the first. He goes over the falls and he's killed. And they pull him out four days later, his body. The boy, who was just, I think, about 10 years old, his name was Roger Woodward, he went over the falls, 10 years old, wearing a bathing suit and a life jacket, and he lived. It was a miracle. The maid of the mist. You ever been on the maid of the mist? You get what? They looked over and somebody saw a little orange speck in the water and it was his life jacket. And they said, there's, and they got over close enough and put out a pole or whatever and pulled this 10 year old kid in with a bonk on his head. He went over the falls. His sister was living another drama. She was 
coming down the river, and she had, by fate or whatever you could say, she had come close to the shore, and somebody looks and says, there's a girl in the water. You've probably stood at the fence line there at Niagara Falls, you know, and you look over and you say, man, I'm glad I'm not in there. And some big burly truck driver from New Jersey, so I can't stand here, he jumped over and went right to the edge and began to motion to the girl, come on, come on, come on, you can make it, come on. Later she would say the comfort of his voice and the surety of his voice. She re- and she reached out and she grabbed a hold of his thumb. She was holding on to his thumb. Another guy saw what was going on. He reached out, grabbed the trucker so they both didn't go in and pulled out this 17-year-old girl who immediately said to the two men, what about my brother? My brother's in the, in the river too. And the one man turned to the other and he said, if you're a praying person, pray, because he knew that people don't go over the falls and live. That's what happens when you begin to drift. Everything's sunny and you're having a good time and you begin to drift. And if you keep drifting, it seems like you capsize. And if you don't get rescued, you go over the edge. And frankly, most people that do that find themselves on the rocks. They don't survive and they don't survive spiritually. I'm going to make a statement, and some of you are going to want to talk to me about this afterwards because it's going to stir you a bit, okay? I've been a minister of the gospel for 30 years, and I cannot tell you how many times people have come to me and said, somebody in my life, my child, my spouse, my best friend, made a decision for Christ, said they were a Christian, identified as a Christian, and they began to drift, And their life is capsized. Uh, Don't you believe in in Reformed theology that says once saved what? Always saved. The perseverance of the saints. Yes, I do. But if somebody is made a decision at eight years of age, you know, raised a hand at camp or whatever, and now for 30 years has drifted deliberately and decidedly away from God and lived a life that's in abject hostility and in rejection of God, I don't know their heart, but I would suggest they should have no assurance of their salvation. Are they saved? I don't know. But people like that, I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, what should I do about my kid? Because they made that decision, and I say, you know what you do? You love them like crazy, and you pray like crazy, and graciously and lovingly keep calling them back to Jesus. So I don't know their heart. But I'm not prepared to stand around and say, yeah, they made a decision when they're eight, but they've totally rejected everything of the Lord. They've given up on the things of Christ, and you know what? But I think they're saved. I don't know. There's no proof of it. The proof of your salvation as far as being assured of your salvation is you continue in your salvation. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying if your kid made a decision at eight and now they've totally rejected the Lord that they are not, I don't know. But if you're here this morning and your Christian experience has simply been, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah I, I want to pray the sinner's prayer but you're living in hostility and rejection to the things of God and there's no manifestation of the spirit in your life, I think you need to take inventory. And I beg you to take inventory. Because God is a God of correction. Spiritual drift will bring correction. 
Do people lose their salvation? I don't think so. But the reality is I think many people never had it in the first place. Now, what does a drift look like spiritually today? I want to share with you three things very uh, quickly. As I look over the last few years especially, I've seen some things that, that can give us a sense, and I've seen this, and again, you may disagree, that's fine, but these may be familiar to you. What does a faith drift look like? Number one, familiarity replaces wonder and delight. Familiarity replaces wonder and delight. And that's why I think the writer of Hebrews is saying, you gotta pay much closer attention. You can't get sort of cavalier and carefree about this. You've gotta pay attention. Familiarity, you know, it's like, yeah, I've read that verse before. Yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, I've heard this before. I've, you know, I've been to church and all that, you know. Instead of having the wonder and delight in the Lord Jesus and just delighting in him and the wonder of his magnificence and his supremacy. The second one, this will come as no surprise to you. A faith drift today, I think often, is gathering with God's people loses priority. Gathering with God's people loses priority. Of course, the verse that's been uh, ubiquitous through COVID is from Hebrews chapter 10 about forsaking the gathering together. You could argue there's some contextual realities. But here's the deal. If you're part of the family of God, you should feel a desire and responsibility to be with the family of God at times. Regularly. And often when I was pastoring and I pastored a large church like this, uh, you know, I'd be out at Home Depot or something and somebody would come up to me and say, hey, this is our pastor, Pastor Steve. We want you to meet, uh, you know, so-and-so. And I'd look at them and I'd say, meet them. I don't know you. <laughs> and they say, he's our pastor. Now, we don't go very often, like once every six weeks or, you know, three or four times a year. We're CE people. You know what CE people are? Christmas and Easter. Right? And they've lost priority. Can I say something with love, but I want to say this to you. If you're a parent, listen carefully. Okay? I pastored hundreds and hundreds of people. And in all of those people, nobody ever came up to me and said, you know what, pastor? Our kids are just about growing. We made a terrible mistake. We had them in church too much. Never had that said to me. I've had parents come to me and say, when we started to worship at the temple of the frozen water on Sunday morning, do you know what that is? That's a hockey rink. When we thought that our daughter was going to be the next Olympic gymnast and so church became a secondary, we told our kids, my, two of my kids were actually fairly good athletes. Don't look at me to, you know, because I know that's hard to believe when you look at me because I sort of look like a bowling pin, right? So, but, you know, two of my kids, but we said, hey, listen, Sunday mornings, we're in church, man. This is before I was a pastor. It was sacrosanct. You're, you're going to go to youth group. Well, I don't really like it. That's, that's good. Go. Make the best of it. Have a good attitude. You'll, you'll like it more. Today, all my kids love Jesus. They're all involved in church. My son's a pastor. My daughter used to be a Bible college professor. And it's not because we were great parents, but there were certain things, and one of them was be amongst God's people. You want your kids and your grandkids, you want their very best friends, not their only friends, their very best friends to be walking a faith walk with them. And that ain't going to happen if you never have your kids here. Okay, enough. I'm going to move on. I've stirred up enough emails as it is. <laughs> Number three, 
Christ-centered devotion is substituted for Christian appearances. Christ-centered devotion is substituted for Christian appearances. Maybe you show up, but you become a consumer instead of a contributor. You know, churches don't need people that rent a chair on Sunday. We need people to say, I'm in, man. I'm in. You count on me. You, you know, you got, you got some. You know what? You got, I walk out here. You ever see how many kids are here on a Sunday? Are they all your kids or do you bust them in from somewhere? Like, there's kids. I'm like, you know, they just don't look after themselves, right? We, we need people that say, I, I, I'm on the team. I'm in. Count me in. But you lose that Christ-centered devotion, you become a complainer instead of encourager. My church doesn't do it right. You, you know how you get a better church? You be a better member. That's how you get a better church. Pretty simple. Right? You become a cynic instead of an, ant, uh, instead of an optimist. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis said, friends. He said, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong and I pray that you'll continue to love Jesus. It's amazing. Second thing I want to talk a little bit about is God's comfort. Look down to verse number five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then we talked about this a bit last week. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He did not. He has much more for us than angels. Then we get down to verse number six, and the writer writes, it has been testified somewhere. Now, whenever you read something like that in Scripture, likely it's a, uh, it's a text that is being drawn forward. And in this case, it is a text that's being drawn forward. It's Psalm 8, a text of David, okay? And goes on to say, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everyone in subjection under his feet. Now, this psalm, when David writes Psalm 8, it's a psalm both about Jesus and man. But when David writes the Son of Man, it's not capitalized. It's about us. Okay, it's about us. And David is writing here, and I think he's writing in wonder in Psalm chapter 8, and he says, you know, when I, in, in the full context of Psalm chapter 8, he says, when I look at the heavens and the wonders of your hands, David says, when I look at what you can do, God, and the greatness of you and what you've created, and then he goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful, meaning you're thinking about him, and that you care for him, meaning you're going to look after them, and you're going to comfort us. And David's saying that wonder, like, God, you do this, and yet you care about me, David. You can write your name in there. You're so great, and yet you care for us. You know, we, we are infinitely more important and connected to God than we can even begin to realize. God gave us the preeminent place in his created order. Now, we know that we've made a mess of it. David says we're lower than the angels because angels, David knows himself, he's not mortal. Or he's mortal, right? So he says, you know, we're, we're, we're mortal, we know that. And yet we're crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because God shared his image in you and with you. And that is why he thinks about you and he cares about you. It's an amazing reality. But then look at verse 9, if you will. He writes this. And the writer of Hebrews, friends, has a perspective that David didn't have. 
The perspective is he's writing post-Jesus. He's seen Jesus. And he writes this, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I hope you find that comforting. Jesus tasted death for every one of us. The ultimate comfort, I think, friends, should be for us, must be for, for us. The ultimate comfort is found in knowing our eternal destiny has been solved by Jesus dying in our place. Amen? That's the ultimate comfort. And if Jesus solved your ultimate problem, which is you're separated from God by sin problem, if he solved that at such an immense cost, he's prepared to give you the best in everything and at all times. Regardless of what the world does to you, take comfort in that. I love the story by Robert Louis Stevenson, great writer. He, he has a story, and it's about a ship that's sailing on the seas, you know, an old sailing ship, passenger vessel. And they get themselves into a storm, and they know that the shoreline is rocky, and they're sailing along, and this storm comes up, and it is ferocious. And, and night comes, and it's dark, and the ship is being battered, and the wind and the rain is just pummeling the ship, and the crew and the captain says, everybody get down below deck and hold on, and everybody goes down there. They're terrified and everything. And one guy, he makes his way up, and he goes up, up onto the deck, risk getting blown right into the water and he makes his way along grabbing hold of things and he gets to the wheelhouse and he gets in the wheelhouse and he looks over and he looks at the guy at the wheel and the guy's holding the wheel firmly and confidently. This guy's terrorized. He's just soaked, you know, soaked to the bone and he looks at the guy in the wheelhouse and the guy in the wheelhouse looks over at him terrified and the guy in the wheelhouse holding this wheel smiles. And the guy turns, goes back out onto the deck, risks his life, and he goes down below, and all the people are down there terrified. Somebody says, where'd you go? He says, I went up to the wheelhouse. Everybody goes quiet. He said, I want you to listen, everybody. I went up to the wheelhouse. I saw who's at the wheel. Everything's going to be okay. Listen to me this morning, church. If you're in a storm of life and you're feeling pummeled and battered, if Jesus is in your wheelhouse, ultimately everything is going to be okay. He's at the wheel. Regardless of how you feel, he's at the wheel. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Take comfort in Jesus today. You know, our God never tires of giving us comfort, and he never wavers from giving us correction. I'm so happy about that. I'm so blessed by that. Here's the big idea in your notes this morning. Listen to this. My correction, because, you know, I can't, I can't figure it all, you know, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to think about all the rules of the Christian life, and to try and do that will drive you crazy. What keeps me on the rails, my correction comes from the way Christ lived. I look at Jesus and I go, man, that's how I got to live. I got to act like that. I got to speak like that. I got to think like that. I got to surrender like that. I got to have my mind focused on God, on the Father like that. Everything about him. That's what I, Jesus' life is the, 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 the correction for me. That's what keeps me on the rails. 
And my comfort comes not from his life, but from the reason he died. His life is the correction for my life. His reason for his death is the comfort in my life. It's an amazing thing that he's done for us. And so the writer says in verse three there, how shall we escape? How can we neglect such a great salvation? How do we just wobble on that? And, and, and some people throw the towel in on that and give up on that and give in on that. How do we do that? Remember Roger Woodward? He's the kid that went over the falls. Remember that kid? He went over the falls. As an adult, he said this. This is a direct quote from him. They said, you know, man, you went over the falls. That's amazing. You know, uh, you ever, what did that mean for your life? Here was his response. It wasn't the hand of fate. It wasn't the hand of luck. It wasn't the spirit of Lilawala, which is the Iroquois uh, myth. They have the maid of the mist is Lilawala. Okay? It was the spirit of the living God that saved my life that day and saved my sister and gave us hope that we would one day come to know him because Roger and his sister Deanne both embraced Christ. He crashed onto the rocks and survived, but listen carefully, most do not. Most do not. But he did. If you're adrift this morning, if you're adrift, then reach out to Jesus. Some of you are here this morning, and you know you're adrift. In fact, your boat may have tipped over. You may have been neglecting this great salvation. You may be headed for the edge. You, you might be here this morning and you're on a very slow, incremental drift and it feels fairly safe, but you know you are drifting. Let me ask you, would the word of God this morning, which tells us not to neglect our great salvation, would the Lord Jesus, if he was to show up at your house today and have a cup of coffee, would, would he say, you know, I think you're neglecting your great salvation a little bit, or a lot. I want you back. I really want you back. You know, I died for you. It's a great salvation. Casting Crowns had a great song a few years ago my wife actually was the one that introduced it to me. I don't know if she thought I needed to straighten up or what. It's called Slow Fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. So if you're adrift this morning, write down this reference. It's so simple. James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's a promise. Why do I continue to follow Jesus? Because he is faithful even when I am not He's a rock when I am so easily prone to drift. 
He's lavish in his love and in his comfort. And there's days I need that. C.H. Spurgeon said this, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Amen? Father God, we love you. We love you. We want you to hear that this day. Father, if we are adrift, if we are neglecting this great salvation, may we take inventory this day and may we reach out, draw near to you, reestablish our anchor in the Lord Jesus. Lord, for some here today, life is in a turmoil, in some cases not of their own doing. Father, we know that this world is hardwired to have us drift and to have us despair. And so for those who are despairing today, Lord, would you be the God of all comfort? For those who are mourning, would you bless them with your presence and your peace and restore the joy of their salvation? May we never neglect it. May what you have done for us never become familiar. May we stand in a place of wonder and delight in the greatness and goodness of you, our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for his glory alone. Amen and amen.